You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Apriremo quelle gabbie vili e co-criminali Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from the 3CR studios in Melbourne via and via podcast. Uh, thanks to Sally from Out of the Pan with the previous show. Check in next week at 12pm uh, on 855am or via podcast and um, check out Sally's next show, All Things Pansexual Issues. Today uh, on the show, we've got Nick Pendergrass co-host and we've got a, a friend of the show who's back to discuss with us all the things that have been up to over in um, the UK. Uh, Harley is here with us. Harley, how are you going? Hello, uh, I'm great. Thank you for having me. And Nick, do you want to do a bit of an introduction about what we're talking about today? Yeah, and so Harley has been over in the UK doing animal activism over there. And for a bit of background for listeners, uh, at the end of last year, so not that long ago, but feels like a long, long time ago, um, Harley spoke about on the show some of the activism uh, that she was going to be doing over there. So do you want to just for to give listeners a bit of a refresher, talk about uh, some of the, the reasons why you were keen to go to the UK and, and what kind of activism you're doing over there? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I moved to the UK at the very beginning of this year, so in January. Um, and yeah, the primary reason I moved was to join the group Animal Rebellion. Um, and I've been working with them pretty much full time since I moved. I was working with another group as well, also doing animal justice work, but I've always stuck with Animal Rebellion. Um, so yeah, the, I guess like Animal Rebellion was formed in June of last year, 2019, and they were formed kind of like in in alliance with Extinction Rebellion, um, but basically it was a bunch of animal justice activists who saw the success Extinction Rebellion were having and were like, like, we need to kind of jump on this and we need to start building something. So what ended up happening out of that was this group of people kind of came together and built this organization, very ragtag, very kind of scrappy and kind of launched that with um, the October Rebellion, which was last year. Um, And during that, they, you know, got international media attention and they occupied um, the biggest meat market in the UK um, and transformed it into a fruit and veggie market. They started getting this kind of idea of like a plant-based food system into Extinction Rebellion and into kind of the broader world and like I was back in Australia hearing about this and I was just really intrigued I guess because I'd seen Extinction Rebellion and what they were doing and you know I tried to get involved in Extinction Rebellion in Melbourne um, and I was kind of like oh you know this is a bit awkward because they just they don't want to talk about animal they don't want to talk about even like animal agriculture and the impacts on the environment, let alone kind of animal justice and anti-speciesism. So when I kind of saw Animal Rebellion, I was a bit skeptical because I was like, oh, you know, it's a, just a it's just a climate group. They don't really care about justice or anything like that. But then I got more involved and started talking to more people, and I realised the potential for a group such as this. Um, and I also realised kind of how fundamentally, yeah, how fundamentally like there's this kind of group of people who really want to take a more strategic approach and kind of start building this like ecology of different groups using different tactics and strategies to kind of work towards the same goal of animal like liberation and justice. 
So that intrigued me enough, I guess, to move over. And I moved over and started working full-time with Anna Moravallion, doing story strategy work. So like working on the narrative, messaging. And then I moved into actions, which is where I've been for the last six months, I guess. So like as part of actions, like we just kind of pulled off in September, uh, the like 10 day rebellion where we had a big action on every day, um, which was massive and really amazing. We, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. It's kind of just like planning massive actions. And then in between that, trying to think about strategy and trying to think about what are we trying to achieve? And then, trying to think about how are we working within the global pandemic at the moment and what does that mean for the animal justice movement. So it's a very short overview of what, where I've been. And what did you, what did you, um, so you mentioned that you uh, started working on narrative and strategy and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what do you mean by narrative um, and how does that play a role in the animal and animal justice movement? Definitely. Um, so I studied, so this is a bit of context. I studied theatre, um, which for a long time I was like, this is completely irrelevant to what I'm doing with my life. I'm trying to kind of work in this social change space or do stuff in this social, social change space at a grassroots level. And I, yeah, it's not very useful. So I need to go out and like kind of learn new skills and kind of reskill and all that. And then I stumbled upon this kind of field of research called our story-based strategy. Um, and kind of the best resource that I found for that is this book called Reimagining Change, um, which is like by the Center for Story-Based Strategy in the US. And essentially this book lays out this idea that society is shaped and social movements are shaped by the stories that they tell and more importantly, by the stories that they challenge in mainstream society. So it's kind of this idea that the world that we live in is shaped by stories and by myths um, that kind of shape our understanding. And it's like that there's dominant stories and all that. And I started to kind of get really interested because it was stuff that I'd learned when I was studying theatre, when I was studying film and TV, when I was studying, you know, creative writing. It was things like, you know, the really obvious stuff like, you know, conflict, heroes, villains, all that um, drama triangles and all, and this, I, these ideas of, that were like really focused on, you know, how do you write a captivating story? And I was like, oh, this can actually apply to a broader kind of social change level. Like how do we tell a story that is going to get people engaged, is going to kind of tap into people's values and also is going to like fundamentally challenge the stories that, exist in society because like for every kind of idea and like ideology like that exists in the world there's things that have to be true for that to kind of go on so like for example like for this idea that like it's like the normal the way we interact with animals is normal like that's a kind of myth that's a story but for that to exist there are things that have to be true so that you know that we are fundamentally superior to animals that we have to eat them to survive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when we start to like challenge that myth through other stories, through things that kind of challenge that opposed us, and this is the things that people do naturally, you know, during outreach, it's like you try and mm. challenge people and you try and kind of give them alternative perspectives and stories. Um, yeah, you can really kind of make this compelling alternative and it kind of forces, forces a duality in people's minds, which kind of makes them more susceptible to confront an issue. But I, yeah, I really started to understand that in a more of a societal systemic lens rather than an individual conversation, like conversational lens. And I started to look into things like framing, um, which really kind of shed a light on how we message as like the left, I guess, like the broader political left and how, why we're kind of often on the back foot and we're kind of defensive rather than kind of in front of the curve. And we're trying to, you know, defend against the political messaging of the right who often don't give a crap whether they're factual or not. They're just kind of making compelling stories. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, like that was the kind of context for 
how I started to understand how narrative and stories really play a key part in creating social change and how if we are proactive in working on that and if we, you know, sit down and think about what stories are we telling, what messaging are we using, like from the really meta level to like what is our, you know, what is our vision to the really kind of prosaic everyday things for like what is on our banners, what is on our signs, what you know, website copy are we using? Like every kind of everything is connected and everything comes together to tell a story about who we are, what we're trying to achieve. And like that story can have a really powerful impact on people who are viewing that and who we're trying to influence. So yeah, that's that's how I kind of, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's actually just quite uh, fortunate, I think, that we've recently played Dilan Fernando's talk from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies conference and um, and Collectively Free Call and Nations conference last year, uh, which which spoke about a, a lot of these issues. So it's quite uh, fortunate that the sort of the timings lined up that these two episodes have have gone quite close to each other. But yeah, both uh, yourself and Dilan both. Uh, involved involved in that in that group and and both uh really sort of stress that importance of the narrative as well which i think really speaks to this idea of we're often sort of told in social movements like use your skills use your skills advocate for animals or whatever a social movement and yeah as you say it kind of can seem something that would seem so separate to animal activism but there's a wide range of of skills that could be useful uh, but on Dylan's talk, um, he spoke about a lot of the the activism that was going on and, and sit-ins and disruptions and all this stuff happening, all quite like exciting type actions. Um, and of course, since then, we've had the pandemic. So I'm wondering, have there been, um, yeah, while you've been there, has there been much sort of in the person, uh, out on the streets kind of activism? Or has it been more, have you had to rely more on online activism during this time? Mm, yeah, so it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster. So yeah, I, like I said, I came over from Australia to join in January, and I got there. We planned our first big action, which was the first big action that the new action team had basically planned. It was a big uh, shutdown of a dairy distribution center. Um, so we did that, and just like the day that we did that, and because we were a new team, it took us like three months to plan. Now we can knock together a massive action in a week, but that took us a long time. And the day it was like the day before, I think we had to we had to have a conversation. Was we we're like, oh, you know, this COVID thing, um, people are starting to get quite upset about it. Um, maybe we should, you know, think about that. And we're like, oh no, we'll be fine. <laughs> um, and after that action, this was in March, and there was plans to have another big rebellion like the one that was in October in May um, and I think a week after that first big action XR announced that they weren't going to go ahead with the May rebellion um, and then the UK went into lockdown and everything kind of changed so during that time we had to be really like creative so like we had so many meetings with the action team where we were kind of brainstorming like what can we do because we don't want to become irrelevant we don't want to stop pushing this. And also, because we realized we were kind of in this unique position in that, like, up until that point, our messages and our demands had been, like, identical to Extinction Rebellion. We were talking about the climate emergency. The only difference is that we brought in, like, the animal emergency, as we called it. Um, so kind of, yeah, the mass, mass slaughter of animals. And we talked about how you can't end the climate emergency without first ending the animal emergency. Um, but up until that point, I like basically were yeah talking about the climate emergency. Then what we realized was that we had this kind of unique path ahead of us in that coronavirus has been like widely considered to be a zoonotic disease, and we you know were talking to scientists, people were talking about like two out of three new emerging diseases were coming from animals. So we had this kind of perspective that we could share that other groups who were kind of trying to do activism in the same sphere at the same time couldn't talk about in that we were talking about you know we're trying to prevent future pandemics and that kind of became our a slogan for that time um, our story so prevent future crises prevent future pandemics um things like that so we did a lot of brainstorming we started doing yeah more online stuff but also uh single person actions um 
And a lot of it was just to keep people kind of occupied who wanted to take action. But yeah, like things like, you know, people went around and hazard taped up McDonald's um, with big, like put big signs out that said like future pandemic site um, closed until further notice. Because all the McDonald's in the UK were closed because of coronavirus. So yeah, like, and that was just a really simple action that people could do. Um, and it was mainly just for the social media photo. We put that out on social media just to kind of encourage people. Um, we did a couple of socially distanced protests, which were being done in other parts of the world as well. So we did one, not as Animal Rebellion, but as a kind of a pop-up group called Pause the System, um, which was when there was a big pressure to put UK into lockdown. Um, the government wasn't. So we went to Downing Street in hazmat suits and masks and stood like two metres apart with like pause the system, um, which seemed to inspire some other actions as well around that. So yeah, there was a lot of social distance, there was a lot of single person. And then at the same time, we were planning for what we were going to do. And we hadn't, like, we had actions lined up for like post lock, like post ISO actions, we called them. So then as soon as we went out of lockdown, pretty much the same week, we did an action at Trafalgar Square called Blood on Your Hands, where we dyed the fountains red. Um, and had two people standing in the fountains. Um, and that, that made international news. Um, and I think a big part of it was that people hadn't seen anything in so long mm -hmm. <laughs> that they were like, what? So, and that, that was a socially distanced protest as well. Um, so I think most of our protests have been socially distanced and, you know, everyone wearing masks. Um, but yeah, as soon as we went out of lockdown, we did that. And then it was a September rebellion, which was all in person with some online elements. Um, we have tried, like we've been really careful with kind of COVID, but it's kind of been finding that right balance um, between pushing things and trying to like, show how, if the government actually cared about like the pandemic, then they would be taking action on, you know, industrial farming, farming and animal farming in general. Um, you know, wildlife destruction, because the more we put ourselves in a kind of the front lines in contact with wild animals, the more at risk we are, future pandemics, future crises. So we kind of, we wanted to make that really apparent and really clear, um, but at the same time showing that we actually were taking the current crisis seriously. So it's been an interesting balance.
to Radical Radio 3CR. The Commons Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom Species. Uh, we are speaking with Harley from the UK uh, uh, with Animal Rebellion. And we've been talking about um, some of the actions and the work that Harley's been involved in over the last year and how they've been, how Animal Rebellion have been putting on socially distanced actions um, during the, the COVID crisis. Uh, and Harley was just about to get into some detail around the September um, actions that they put on with Animal Rebellion. Uh, Harley, can you tell us a little bit more about these actions and, and how, um, what I'd be, really be interested in hearing more about is how people are taking the actions, how the pandemic and the connection to animals, whether it's actually resonating with people. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, September, um, so I think something to point out is, yeah, we had 10, 10 days of action. Um, there were three actions that we did, which gained kind of quite a bit of media attention. And I'll point out that the media have been quite tough um, during this time to try and get any attention. Um, they hate XR. They don't hate us yet, um, but they won't really cover what we do. Um, so it's kind of interesting again, like trying to figure out like, what are we actually trying to do? Are we trying to get media or are we trying to, you know, gain public support? Or are we trying to bring people on our side? But what we noticed was that we had three actions that gained quite a bit of media. Um, and all of them had a strong pandemic focus. Um, so we had, you know, actions, every, every action we did was at different targets. We targeted the BBC um, with like a tell the truth kind of narrative, um, talking about how the media kind of refuses to kind of look at the connection between animals and the climate emergency. We targeted the Department of Environment, Health and Rural Affairs, um, so DEFRA. Um, we targeted a whole bunch of other places, but there were three, yeah, three actions that really got a lot of attention. One was um, we parked a massive pink slaughter truck in front of the Department of Health and Social Affairs, um, blocked the road there, and that truck said, like, uh, animal farming equals pandemics and climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and that got us a lot of media attention and a lot of people talking about, yeah, the link between animal farming and pandemics particularly. The action that probably got us the most interesting coverage was, again, um, a pandemic focus, and that was we shut down a pig slaughterhouse in Manchester for an entire day. So we kind of stopped the killing of pigs for an entire day. Uh, we had, like rebels locked on on the ground we had two people on the roof and that's why they couldn't get us down because they couldn't get the person off the roof and they were sitting on gas chambers so that action was the strangest action i've ever been part of because the first media piece we got was in farmers weekly and it was a positive article like they basically quoted our entire press release talking about the link between and added additional research to our press release that we hadn't put in there. Um, so talking about the link between animal farming and pandemics, talking about like who we were, um, what we were trying to do. So what we were kind of spin? baffled. Was there, spin? there was no spin. It was literally like their spin was out spin. <laughs> but the website's was, been hacked maybe. <laughs> hacked yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was the strangest thing. We read it like on the ground at Manchester. It was a miserable day. We were surrounded by police and our media person came over and was like, 
hey everyone check this out we got our first piece of like coverage it's in farmers weekly and we're all like oh shit and they're like no wait <laughs> read out the article and we were like what it was, it was absurd so that was a really interesting kind of piece of information that we were like okay so people are thinking about this people are concerned about this we also got a neutral article so completely neutral no kind of irresponsible you know militant vegans just animal animal rebellion shuts down pig processing center this was in pork magazine um yeah completely neutral article so that was the weirdest action i've ever done um but we also got like really kind of big newspapers covering that action and yeah again pandemic focus and then we had another action which got a lot of media attention which was uh, an open letter to downing street um, with people in like plague doctor costumes talking about the link mm. with animal farming and pandemics and that got quite a bit of media so i think what we saw like and what you said adam was that when we're talking about that link between animal farming and pandemics people are really interested and i think yeah it was kind of like this i we got the sense we didn't we didn't get much we expected a lot of negative backlash for protesting during covid um but what we got instead was i think more concern and more potentially openness to i think people are a lot seem to be a lot more open to not trusting the status quo at the moment which you know part of it comes from a lot of conspiracy which isn't very good mm. but i think also part of it's come from a massive disillusionment which has happened this year um so we did notice that quite a bit um a kind of openness to being like okay yeah this, this is bad mm, that's interesting yeah, I- yeah, I was going to just ask, um, one, one sort of ongoing discussion that I've had a couple of times, uh, we've had Roger Yates on the show, who is an um, animal activist over in Ireland, and, and he's been mostly doing online work during this time. And, and yeah, obviously, that's really great to get that sort of mainstream media coverage, because it, it reaches sort of a, a general audience. And as you say, even sort of your yeah, audience you wouldn't expect to reach with those farmers uh, publications, etc., um, but yeah, I think that is important because it reaches out beyond just animal activists, beyond vegans and people who get that that link of the the damage of animal agriculture and the link to these health issues, environmental issues, animal issues, et cetera. Um, and I was wondering, I know you've, you've, you've managed to continue to do some sort of actions in person, but yeah, I guess with a, you know, a lockdown possibly looming, I was wondering, yeah, how you go about that online activism. And I think the big sort of issue for activists to overcome is getting outside that echo chamber and, and not just having mm. posts promoting vegans, veganism going out to people who are already vegan and, and same with other ideologies sort of floating around online as well. Like, yeah, how, how do you break outside of that sort of echo chamber online? Is that something you've given any thought to? Yeah, so this is something we've been just recently talking about. So basically after the rebellion, like in all of our debrief, we were talking about how there's a lot of things that we rely on. And one of them is the media, like we rely on the media, but the other one is kind of like social media, like Facebook, like that's our main source of kind of building communities um, and things like that. Um, And there's a lot of people like myself included who don't like that. Like don't like having such a reliance on Facebook um, and having such a reliance on this kind of platform, which is, has been created to kind of silo people in they're like within people who have the same perspective ideology as them and it's like it's not even like you know the mainstream media is a cure to that because you can get in the mainstream media and still only a certain group of people are going to read that like who kind of read that newspaper it's only people who are specifically searching for you that are going to see the kind of broad variety of coverage so that's i think that's a big question for Anna Morabain, but just, I think also just, I know for me and I know for kind of people in general at the moment, it's like, it's almost like we've lost the ability to connect um, and to share ideas. Um, And like, I, yeah, I really, I don't know the answer at the moment. Um, It seems quite, it's all, it seems for me, it's almost impossible to imagine like a world where Facebook doesn't dominate um, as like, the way that you share ideas, the way that you share events, the way that you kind of get people 
involved. I think, I think there I is hope think... it could always change to Instagram or something like that, it could move to a different social media platform, but uh, that's about the only hope I see. True. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weak hope. <laughs> um, and yeah, like we have seen a shift like more towards Instagram and stuff. But yeah, like I think, yeah, it's a real challenge. And I say it is a real challenge, um, especially at the moment, like, like you've said with, you know, a lot of things kind of by necessity moving online and it's kind of like how do we keep pushing these ideas how do we keep kind of challenging just the norm and the kind of the status quo when we can't reach outside our circles um, it's so yeah it's it's a really interesting um thing to think about because if i think back if we think back to like, what are we comparing it to, comparing now to? We're isolated and, and siloed in social media, but we were before too, and we would only hear certain stories that were allowed to be presented on the one or two media media outlets across a nation, um, or we would we would mm. mostly hear local media stories and things like that. Uh, and and you know, if we go back fifty years or seventy years or a hundred years, the isolation was still there, just in a different way through a different through a different mode and certainly the internet has mm. helped us connect far more widely than we were able to and and helped minority voices far more than older modes of um of media and communication but uh, yeah it's still a massive problem and it's it's unclear where it goes from here especially with you know with the evidence coming out that that Facebook and these other social media platforms are, are really quite nefarious in, in mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world we live in right now. Definitely. Like sometimes I think about it, I'm like, maybe we should just, you know, I don't know, throw flyers at every door that we see. And like, that's how we get our information out. Because rather than make your Facebook post, just, put like do letterbox drops everywhere <laughs> but yeah it's not very effective or green <laughs> yeah but I, I think also like there, there is that sort of it has definitely been an ongoing issue as adam mentioned but yeah I, I i do think it has sort of exaggerated that quite a lot like i'm thinking of like this is like a sort of a bit of a stereotypical vision but like where the family would sit down and watch the news and we'd have mm. different political ideologies and watch news and of course there are like the news is divided too do you watch like yeah. in the u.s like fox news versus msnbc etc like are you a liberal or conservative etc but i guess like that idea when, when there was sort of relying on more a small number of outlets and kind of like there'd be a shared sort of set of facts and then the same sort of stories and then different ideologies would discuss that whereas i think like and so i guess bringing the vegan issue if there was like that more like everyone sitting down and watching the news it's like there's a vegan story in the news the whole family again it's sort of like an idyllic vision but we'd sit down and, and watch that and discuss veganism whereas now it's like we're all everyone in the family's accessing their own social media so the vegan sees the the vegan story the non-vegans don't see that and i feel like it has yeah not say it's nothing new but it, it definitely i think has exaggerated those things that are already in place but not not to not to get to, too sidetracked but i still don't think it's that like the, the vegan issue just would not have gotten onto right. the um the the family news it just yeah. wasn't wasn't allowed because there were so few outlets to speak and they would be taken up by quote more important issues yeah so mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i think it's interesting because yeah like even when i was like, growing up um i would like sit and watch the news with my parents um, and my parents still sit and watch like ABC news. Mm. Um, but like when I talk to people, like a lot of people, like I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately, like who want to kind of, you know, quit social media, say, and the biggest thing they say about why they don't is because that's where they get all their information from. Like that's where they find their news. That's where they find their articles. And I think, yeah, it's a massive thing of like mm. that we have. And yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a new thing. Um, but that this like, kind of information flow is so restricted to these channels um, which aren't created to facilitate flow of information. Um, mm. Yeah, like they're not created to be a, 
source of open discussion interesting relevant mm. yeah discussion exactly mm. um that's kind of like a, a secondary function that's kind of come out of them so yeah i think it's a really it's going to just keep becoming more relevant i think as more every more and more things move online you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio who's afraid of the sun Question the goodness of the mighty, we who banish the threat. When your little ones all go nighty nighty, well, there's no time for doubt right now and less time to explain. So get back on your horses, kiss my ring, join our next campaign, and the empire grows. Forced our words And we find that ingenuously Churlish words are just words Don't be so pessimistic Weak and girlish We like strong, happy people Who don't think there's something wrong with pride Work makes them free And we spread that freedom far and wide And the empire grows journalist cried out when it was too late to stop us everyone had awakened to the dream they could enter our colossus and now i'm right yeah you said i'm right there's nothing that can harm me cause the sun never sets on my dungeon you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and we are speaking with Harley. Harley is with Animal Rebellion in the UK, been working there this year um, and has been doing lots of great actions and, and things. We've just been talking about um, some, of the, some of the challenges with how to communicate with people in an in online um, setting. And um, yeah, sort of, uh, Harley, how... How is Animal Rebellion sort of thinking about that into the future? You know, as you say, people are, are, are I think social media is is starting to be challenged a little bit more and people are wanting to come off of it. How how do we continue action and advocacy and community building when people are less trusting and less interested in social media? Can we? Mm. Yeah, so I feel like this is the this is the challenge at the moment because like my first response and something that's worked really well for Animal Rebellion is like one-to-one relationship building and team building, so in-person stuff. But then we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it's like so for example, yeah, we went out of lockdown and when we went out like in the UK, when we went out of lockdown, we started like meeting in person again and like we just did a training weekend which was really great because it was a chance for people to kind of come together. And like, these were new people who had a lot of the time just learned about like animal rebellion during um, September rebellion and then wanted to get more involved. Um, So they came along and it was really great. We could, you know, do trainings, we could talk, we could build relationships. People started to, people felt more connected. Um, But then it's looking like that won't be viable. Like, in the next couple of weeks because like the UK is kind of getting more like more restrictions back in place. And I know like in Australia, like that's been the case for a long time. Mm. So it's a, I think it's a real, it's a real challenge at the moment. There's like, so in Red Animal Rebellion, we have different platforms. We have things like, uh, like Mattermost, 
which is like a, a messaging kind of sharing platform. We use like a lot of messaging, like there'll be a lot of like messaging groups, but they don't kind of facilitate that same connection. Um, and like something that I've learned a lot recently is the idea that groups like don't like kind of aren't formed or don't stay together because of kind of the group. They are most effective when there's like relationships between like one-to-one, -one, like one-to-one -one relationships between team members. And I think actually Google found this, which was like they did this massive study on like how teams work together. And they found out that that's like the defining factor of like the separate the good teams from like amazing teams. It's that there's one-to-one -one relationships between people involved. So I guess like that's kind of my only way forward at the moment with this, which is just that kind of idea of like forming, like bringing people in to what you're doing by forming like one-to-one -one relationships with them, having those discussions, those conversations with like individual people and just knowing that that will influence the one-to-one -one relationships they have. And you kind of have this, this like this network effect of if you kind of make an effort to like deepen the one-to-one -one relationships you have mm. by like talking about this stuff, like having discussions about, you know, animal justice and like strategy and what we're trying to do. Cause I know like personally, like sometimes I just don't want to, like I'll be online and everything's too much. So then when I'm actually in person, having a conversation with a friend or a family member, I'm like, Ugh, I can't be bothered. <laughs> um, and sometimes I feel like I've gone back to like right at the start of my like animal justice journey where I was like, I just need to talk to everyone. And then I kind of went away from that and I'm like, no system change. And I still believe in system change. Like that's kind of the way that I believe that we're going to make things happen rather than individual change. But I've kind of gone this full circle to being like those one-to-one -one connections that we form like that's how we build a movement to mm. make system change. Without that, then we're just kind of individuals floating in our bubbles, trying to connect across wavelengths and bandwidths. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I guess like changing gears a bit away from the social media. Just one thing you brought up earlier was that people seem quite receptive to the messaging and the protests and stuff, which is really great to hear. I just wanted to just talk a little bit from my own experience, just from um, yeah, being quite heavily involved on the climate change issue. Certainly not to the extent as many people are, but you know, with the bushfires over over Christmas and, and that kind of thing, it was very at the forefront of many of our minds in Australia. And I was attending the protests and and covering the issue on my podcast and that kind of thing. And since Corona hits, it's almost like I haven't got the, the, the bandwidth to handle another sort of, you know, really big emergency as well. And so it's really been hard. I know I've been wanting to cover climate change fatigue on my podcast. I was kind of keen to cover that. And then I was too sort of Corona fatigue to talk about climate change fatigue. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just wondering, uh, yeah, like that, that's really positive to hear, but I'm just wondering like, are you sort of getting that resistance of people like we're dealing with a pandemic already. We can't, we can't consider animal liberation or, you know, environmental impact of animal agriculture, et cetera, in this moment, or it sounds like maybe people are still making these connections, which is good to hear, but yeah. Mm. No, I definitely think so. Like, I think one thing I've noticed is that, like, yeah, like, I think people have been receptive. And I think, you know, media has been quite positive or neutral. But what I've noticed is that we haven't gotten the same, like, backlash as we might have, like, say, last year, if we blocked a road. And, you know, on one hand, we might be like, oh, that's a good thing. People are like, you know, positive but on the other hand it's kind of like people just don't care as much people are just so caught up in everything that's going on that they're not as outraged which you know we kind of you know when you're doing disruptive actions you kind of rely on outrage a bit um and and i mean that's that's the point isn't it that's that's the that's mm. the issue you can't do a disruptive action if you're not disrupting anyone because everyone's yeah. at home working from home. They're not, they're not driving through town. So you can't really blockade anything. And if you do, you're not affecting exactly. as many people. Um, that's exactly. interesting. Yeah. So you kind of have to rely on like disrupting like consciousness and like people's like perspectives and like disrupting kind of the status quo 
but that's a lot less reliable because then you're often relying on the media because like people aren't on the street to be disrupted. So the only way that they know about it is if the media decides to report on it. So then that's kind of, yeah, this kind of awkward relationship, which I think we've always had with the media of like relying on them so much um, to do our publicity work for us. Um, but yeah, I really think, I do think people are very kind of just, it's almost like, yeah, they'll be receptive because they're ready to believe everything's fucked. But mm. they aren't willing or able, I guess, if there's, yeah, there's too much like, fatigue to think about actually taking action. Because it's like, well, what am I supposed to take action on? Am I supposed to take action on like the climate, um, animals, this, this? And it's just, I feel like people are just overwhelmed. And it's a similar kind of overwhelm I feel like that people get when they get involved in like social justice spaces, when they just realize how much is wrong with the world. And it's like, you just want to curl up in a ball and hide. And I almost feel like it's kind of infecting the general public this year because the first time like, the pandemic has affected like everyone. And I think it's like, for the, like people are being affected. And it's just that realization that, oh, this isn't this isn't kind of the the world that I thought it was, and yeah, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of just like a lack of lack of energy, I guess, around these issues. Mm. Yeah, I, fe I I certainly feel that lack of energy. That's for sure. And <laughs> it, it's it's funny that you you're talking about the that you've both mentioned like the the malaise over sort of climate. Um, the climate emergency because of the animal uh, because of the pandemic I was you know I'm involved with some climate stuff um, maximum protection climate emergency stuff and I haven't done anything in that space for quite a while and I was reading a recently released um, sort of paper by uh, the Breakthrough Institute in, in Australia and it just shows how like stuffed we are and how mm -hmm. it just highlights how much of an emergency is. And I just had this week, I had this real sort of overwhelming feeling that even though like I just need to do things because otherwise yeah. we are fucked, like seriously, we are stuffed. And I suppose that's always the case for animals. But yeah, it's, sometimes yeah. it just gets so overwhelming that you just shut off from it. It's yeah. tough. I think there's, there was this moment for me during the rebellion, which was when we were outside the pig slaughterhouse. Um, there's actually a speech of me getting very emotional about this. Um, but I, yeah, but anyway. Um, there was, we put a link to it and, in the notes, maybe. <laughs> and they, like, we told them not to tell the trucks to come. And we had, like, posters and letters and everything saying, you know, we got there, like, three hours before opening. Um, we knew that it was, like, quite a short journey so we knew that they could turn, like not tell the trucks not to come they did like they told us no trucks will come today um like you're here but then as soon as they started cutting people out the people were locked on as soon as they started cutting the people out even though there was still someone on the roof the slaughterhouse managers called the trucks so about an hour two hours later the trucks showed up um so like three trucks came in like within five hours so they just yeah they saw people being cut out and they just like opportunistically we're like oh well they won't be here for very long even though it took like over an hour for each person to be cut out and then there was someone on the roof who they couldn't get down and uh, yeah I just had this moment of like seeing the trucks kind of show up and just seeing the the lengths that those like this industry would go to to kill these pigs like not just have one day where they didn't kill pigs like Mm. and it was just like so overwhelming and it was like well and it was almost like yeah like this helplessness of like okay so we've shut it down for today but that doesn't affect tomorrow and yeah it's this helplessness of like how like small you feel in comparison to these massive industries but I guess as well it's like this kind of energized thing of like well we can you know we can do something we have to do something but yeah it's I it's yeah, there's such a helplessness to it, um, which I think why like the rebellion was so important because people were surrounded by other people who felt the same way and who were taking action and, and 
you feel a bit less small when there's you know 200 other people doing the same thing as you but yeah it's, it's tough and, and that's you feeling helpless when you're obviously doing so much more than than many people. But uh, yeah, I think it is always, we spoke a bit about activist burnout um, on a recent episode. And yeah, I think the idea of like, even if any individual is going to try and do activism 24-7, these industries and, and climate change, and all these things are going to continue. But I guess it's more about, about doing something, not necessarily like also taking time out for other things as well. But as an individual, you are kind of insignificant, but I guess where the hope for many of us lies is these social movements that become more powerful than just an individual. Mm. And, and that is something we've been discussing on the show as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You've kind of touched on, touched on it a few times, but this whole debate between like individual change versus slash and structural change, um, I, I've you know, a lot of the activism I've done, which is quite common in recent years, the animal activism movement is sort of vegan outreach, like individually promoting veganism. Um, and we recently spoke to Roger Yates, who's involved in that kind of activism. And I definitely support that activism and support you know, being vegan myself and encouraging others to go vegan. But I've definitely moved more in the direction of that structural change and a plant-based food system, et cetera, which I know you're talking about with Animal Rebellion. And definitely my thinking's been inspired by people like um, you and Delan talking about this structural change and, and plant-based food systems, sort of using similar messaging for environmental movements. But yeah, I was wondering your thoughts on this idea of, um, yeah, you've touched on it a bit already, but yeah, individual change, whether that's sort of like philosophical changes regarding animals or sort of consumption changes, uh, sort of versus slash and um, bigger sort of uh, systemic change for animals. Definitely, yeah. So I think there's kind of the two, there's animal rebellion and then me. Um, and they're quite similar, I guess. So we get asked a lot at animal rebellion, like, why don't you tell people to go vegan? And like, it's to the extent like, you know, at our protests, at our marches and things like that, um, if someone's like chanting like go vegan, we'll like ask them to stop and things like that because that's kind of not who we are. But our answer is always, and it really is like as part of our DNA, that it's not that we don't support that kind of activism um, because we do and we think it's needed and important. It's just that we think it's one part of this movement and it's a really important part and there's a lot of groups doing it really well, like that kind of one-to-one -one outreach, that encouragement of personal lifestyle change. Um, but there's also another element, which is the structural change, which is the system change, which is just as needed. Um, and that's kind of the gap that Animal Rebellion fills. So that's kind of, yeah, Animal Rebellion thing. And then there's me. Um, and I, like, I, I came into this through, like, reading philosophy. And I went vegan, like, pretty quick. And, like, then I kind of started getting active because I was so passionate because I'd read all this philosophy because I'd chosen to change my life, like my lifestyle, like what I ate, what I wore, what I used, like what products I used. And that like lit this fire in me. And then I like, yeah, co-founded an organization. I did all this stuff and I ended up moving here to do this work. So I feel like for me, it's like without that, without that education on like the personal change that I could make, and without that, like, philosophical enlightenment, I guess, um, and the conversations I had about speciesism and anti-speciesism, I wouldn't be where I'm at. But then I also see that we can, you know, do as much one-to-one -one outreach as we can. We can turn, you know, heaps of people vegan. But without that system change, we're not going to get to where we want to go. We're not going to kind of achieve any kind of structural change for animals, but they work hand in hand because like the more people who embrace this, you know, animal free lifestyle or embrace kind of understand and explore speciesism, um, then the more people we have to kind of move this movement forward and kind of get to that structural change. But yeah, I guess I, I really see like how critical like, system change is because like this system is it's built to not give people enough time to actually make a difference mm. um and like i know a lot of vegans who are really passionate and yeah who've gone vegan because they believe in animal justice but they're so caught up in the system 
that they, you know, they can't, you know, they're working full time, they have a family to raise, they have bills to pay, they can't go out there on the street, and they can't, you know, kind of fight for this change, even though they're doing everything they can from a personal level. And if they had the opportunity, they would want to do more. Um, so I kind of see that and I realize that the system is what's broken, because the system is what kind of allows these systems of exploitation to flourish, because it doesn't give any other option. Um, so yeah, I guess it's kind of like that dual thing of like, I think individual change is so important because, you know, people, people want to change. People want to live in line with their values and, you know, vegan outreach, uh, talking about how we can kind of personally live anti, as close to anti-speciesism lives as we can. Like they do, they allow people that opportunity to live in line with their values, which then kind of, you know, often inspires people to then take action. Um, but then if it's only that, it's just, I feel like it just leads to people feeling so disempowered, but so small and so powerless because it's just kind of almost, it's it almost is like them versus the rest of the world. Um, whereas when we have this advocacy and activism focused on the system, then it allows people to see how this is bigger than them. But that if there's enough of us that we can fight that and we can change it because the system is theoretically shaped by those who live within it. Yeah. Um, we, we are sort of running out of time, aren't we? So we better just uh, finish up. So maybe just to finish up, and I did also want to say that I think like, yeah, like equally as just a, as your um, animal rebellion doesn't reject individual change and equally those campaigning for vegan outrage um, don't necessarily reject structural change as well. Like we need to do lots of things mm -hmm. in the movement, but not everyone has to do everything as well. So yeah, it's about like kind of do, addressing these things as a movement, not necessarily yeah each individual doing everything. Um, but yeah, maybe to finish up, um, you're going to bring us some uh, interviews from over there in the UK. Um, and we obviously want to give specific names or whatever, you're probably not quite sure you're going to do, but do you want to just give listeners uh a bit of a taste of some of the topics going to bring us on future shows and also, yeah, anything else you'd like to add to finish with, any websites, Random Rebellion or yourself or anything like that to finish up with? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a lot of people doing really interesting things in the UK. So, yeah, I'm hoping to bring some things from Animal Think Tank, which is an organisation that I did some work with, um, kind of who's focusing on this idea of, like, building a mass movement animal justice and what that might look like hoping to bring some perspective of like the political perspective in the uk um and kind of what it means to actually kind of target the government um and think about like how can the how can the political system kind of facilitate or hold back animal justice and animal liberation um and some methods of like working with farmers um, and kind of collaborating with farmers and what that might look like. And that's kind of a project that a couple of people are working on in the UK of collaborating and working with farmers to kind of move towards a better world, better future, better food system. So, yeah, that's some tasters. <laughs> nice. And, yeah, websites. Um, yeah, I think our Animal Rebellion's website is probably the best one to go to. Um, basically, if you just Google search Animal Rebellion, um, you'll find it. Um, and, yeah, it kind of gives us give our upcoming events, some more information about who we are and opportunity to get involved. I don't. I think there's an Animal Rebellion per South Australia. I don't know, Adelaide maybe. I don't think there's one in Melbourne. Um, but, yeah, if anyone wants to start it, go for it. <laughs> get in touch. I'd be happy to have a chat. <laughs> Thanks, Holly. And uh, tune in next week uh, from 1 to 2 next Sunday, 8.55am uh, in Melbourne, or we're streamed live via the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or you can find us on podcast. Um, and thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Stay tuned for In Psychedelia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.